This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. The speaker is Shyla Catherine. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. Like to do. Tonight's. Um, were there any other announcements? Okay. Tonight's. Um, topic is the heavenly messengers and I wanted to give a bit of an overview of the subject and so um, I'll be speaking about each of the heavenly messengers now we had some discussion when we were devised to developing the theme for this series as to whether we were going to do the three heavenly messengers or the four heavenly messengers because there are some discourses where the Buddha spoke about three heavenly messengers and there are others where he spoke about four heavenly messengers and so we were discussing how we wanted to organize the talk. Um, most of this series is going to be focused on the three primary heavenly messengers, but there were, but there is a, um, there is also a story that describes the four heavenly messengers, and I wanted to present that as the basic overview tonight. One of the questions that I want to ask and pose is really, what makes sentience? What makes humanness? What gives meaning to our existence? What actually distinguishes us as somehow more noble than any other animal? Are we even more noble than any other animal? That might be a real question. Um, when I lived with Punjaji, my guru in India, we used to take walks around the blocks. And in India, in Lucknow, where we lived, there were many pigs that lived on the streets. and. Um, Mostly pigs, a few cows, but mostly pigs. And, you know, they live on the streets, so they do everything on the streets. And um, we'd be walking by, and, you know, they make a lot of little baby pigs. And um, so they'd be, we'd be walking by and, you know, see them copulating or see them eating or see them fighting or see them doing this or that. And Poonjaji used to say that human beings were just like pigs if they only lived for pleasures, sex, food, and sleep, that we were no different than the pigs on the street if that was the extent of our, um, of our, of, of our aspirations to get more of each of those pleasures. So what gives meaning to humanness? This is a question that's been explored in philosophy and history and science and religion and even in futuristic fantasy. Are there any Trekkies out there? A few? Oh, good, a few. Do you, remember, you, know, um, you know Data in, um, in, in the, the Next Generation? Okay, so Data is, uh, is this um, android that um, is basically composed of circuitry. And then in Voyager, they also had a character of the doctor who was a hologram, who was composed of force fields and photons. And in both of these um, series, they had many episodes that basically explored the question of humanness. That was, the, that was one of the essential features of these characters and their, and their interactions with the, um, with the crew and the teams. What were, what were their rights? Did they have human rights? And how was humanness defined? Did it require a particular biochemical process of an organic creature? 
or was humanness defined in other ways just such as through growth or through the ability to learn or having feelings or emotions desires or ambitions or morality and ethics what makes us what we are and what is essentially human now, with recent advances in cloning and genetic engineering and artificial intelligence, it brings this question uh, maybe out of science fiction a little bit and maybe a little bit closer to our own lives and um, a wider audience for debate. But the essence of this question is what makes us more noble than just a biochemical reaction? And perhaps another question might be, can the vulnerability of this biochemistry, this experience of being corporeal, of having a body, can this experience, this vulnerability of having a body, bring us to an ennobling vision? There is tremendous vulnerability that comes with having a, a life bound by this physical form. We experience birth, aging, sickness, and death. And this process of birth, aging, and sickness, and death in some way cuts to the core of our physical existence. It's very basic. Are we willing to open and know this vulnerability, the suffering that might be attached to this vulnerability, the unreliability, the unsatisfactoriness associated with birth, aging, sickness, and death. What will make the difference from a life or a body that's born, gets sick, and, and dies just in suffering, or a life that is born, gets sick, and, gets sick, and dies liberated from suffering? And what will make the difference in our own lives? Since we are born, we will get sick, and we will die. But how does that process relate to suffering or the ending of suffering in our lives? Contemplative meditations invite us to look very clearly and directly at our vulnerability. It's another way of looking at suffering or looking at dukkha. Dukkha, the Pali term that we translated as suffering, doesn't always mean agony. Sometimes it just describes this basic unreliability, vulnerability to things. But contemplative meditations also ask us to look beyond suffering, beyond vulnerability, beyond birth and beyond death, to realize the unborn, the unaging, the undying, and the unconditioned. Not to transcend these basic facts of existence, not to pretend that we are immortal or invulnerable or can't be hurt by any of these processes, but to use the facts of birth, aging, sickness, and death as the vehicle for our awakening, as the process to understand dukkha so clearly that we free ourselves from dukkha, from suffering. 
There's a legend of the early life of Prince Siddhartha, who later became the Buddha. And it's said that when he was a young man, he lived um, with quite a bit of comfort. It's said that he had four palaces, one for each season, and that the gardeners would, 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 would protect him from seeing any soiled, torn leaf or any dying flower, and they would at night pluck away and prune the bushes so that when he awoke each morning the garden was perfect, and that he was surrounded by uh, um, ministers and musicians and playmates and people who were all young and all healthy, and he was protected from the sight of illness, aging, and death. Frankly, I don't know how this is possible, but it makes a good dramatic story in the tradition. So I take it really in the spirit of, of, of storytelling. And it describes a protected youth, a fairly naive youth, which in many ways may describe the average youth. <laughs> it's a fairly rare young person who really grasps a, the potency of aging, sickness, and death. But the legend says that at one point, Prince Siddhartha ventured out from this comfortable existence to go into the village. And he, took, he asked his charioteer named Chana to drive him through the, through the village. And in previous times, it's said that whenever he went into the village, um, the king had ordered the streets to be swept clean and the um, sick and the homeless to be removed from the streets so that what he saw was a, was a, was a kind of more or less a lovely parade. But this time he went out just with his charioteer and he saw somebody on the road. It was a couple actually, who were bent over and leaning on sticks as they walked. Their skin was wrinkled and their flesh sagging. And he asked, what is this? And Chana, the charioteer, said, this is old age. And Siddhartha pondered this and he asked, will this happen to me too? And, his, and Chana said, yes, everyone will grow old, yourself included. No one is exempt from aging. And it said this disturbed the delicate young um, Siddhartha, so he went back to the um, palace. And after some time, though, ventured out again, wanting to see more. And so Chana took him, but this time... On another day, he saw a man leaning against a rock, coughing, staggering, and sweating. His face was red with fever, and Chana informed him that he was seeing sickness, and that, yes, it would happen to everyone, including him. He went back to the palace, and on a third occasion ventured into the village again and this time they encountered a corpse that was being carried to the banks of the river for the burning and the cremation and the family was wailing in grief behind the stretcher and the fragrance of flowers that had were draped across the body didn't disguise but the um the, the stench of the corpse, but only blended into a nauseating smell of decaying flesh 
he saw that parts of the body were bloated and disfigured and it was quite unimaginable to him that life at once flowed through those veins and so he asked Jhana what was this and Jhana said this is death you are seeing death and will this happen to me yes this will happen to everybody including you so he went back to the palace and then he came out again on another occasion and this time they saw a recluse they saw a sadhu. They saw some, a, a, a man with radiant complexion and a gentle demeanor who walked steadily, seemingly without hurry or fear. He seemed joyful and peaceful. And when Chana asked who this was, and he was told this is a renunciate, a recluse, a sadhu, one who has renounced the world and now lives a simple life dedicated to the spiritual quest. This inspired the young Siddhartha to contemplate aging, sickness, death, and the possibility of discovering a peace within the experience of the body, a peace that had come to terms with the inevitability of aging, sickness, and death. And it was these encounters that the story is told inspired, um, kind of turned Siddhartha's um, interests away from the worldly pleasures of the palace and turned his attention towards the spiritual life. Here, his desire for liberation was born. There was another discourse where the Buddha talked about his own enlightenment when he remembered his enlightenment and he said before my enlightenment this was remembering what happened before he said while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva being myself subject to birth aging ailment death sorrow and defilement I sought after what was also subject to these things then I thought why being myself subject to birth, aging, ailment, death, sorrow, and defilement, do I seek after what is also subject to these things? Suppose, being myself subject to these things, seeing danger in them, I sought after the unborn, unaging, unailing, deathless, sorrowless, undefiled, supreme release from bondage, Nibbana. I find these stories and discourses very interesting and I'm actually quite impressed that so many people have come. Sometimes when we see a poster and we say aging, sickness and death, we think, oh, well, you know, nobody's going to come to this one. <laughs> and it takes a certain maturity to realize the profundity of embracing these aspects of life rather than avoiding them or just trying to pretend that they're not really an issue for us. So I want to look at each one briefly. You'll go into much more detail in the coming weeks, but I want to just sort of touch on each subject. Aging is an interesting one. I was taking a walk with a friend from out of state who had come to visit. And we took a walk in the neighborhood and sat by a pond, uh, and, um, one of those uh, city parks that had a little duck pond. And we were sitting on the bench talking. And she said, you're getting gray. 
because <laughs> I haven't seen her in, I don't know, maybe it's been about a year, and I guess, I guess I've gotten more gray. It happens so slowly. I know that I'm getting gray, but I didn't know that it was that dramatic. And I said, yeah, you know, it's been about two years that I've really felt like I'm old now. You know, like I used to think I was young. There's some kind of a, a line I crossed a couple of years ago that I no longer think of myself as young. And I said, what's even worse, though, is that everybody else thinks of me as old. <laughs> Often it's difficult to accept our own aging. And sometimes the images that we have of ourselves really are not even the image of our actual age or our actual experience. Sometimes it's hard to find a, a picture that looks like us if we have. I, I've had this experience of looking at old pictures and thinking, oh, that one looks more like me. Oh, but it's like 15 years old. <laughs> you know, so in some ways, our ideas of ourselves are, can, can sometimes be outdated. Um, and that comes when we really haven't paid attention or accepted this fact of aging. Sometimes our abilities diminish with, um, with our age. Sometimes our, um, he- our um, health, our agility, our um, various aspects change. And in many ways, our culture glorifies youth. But the attractiveness and the desirability of youth, though, isn't just something that has been glorified in contemporary culture. But I found a wonderful, a wonderful um, poem that was in that's in the Buddha's um, in the Pali Canon that was spoken as a verse by Ambapali, who was a a great. Um, uh, she was a, one of the great nuns of the of the Buddhist time, extraordinary woman who, before she ordained, was one of the most powerful courtesans. And she says in her poem, "My hair was black and curly, the color of black beads. Now I am old. It is like the hemp of trees." This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. Fragrant as a scented oak, I wore flowers in my hair. Now, because of old age, it smells like dog's hair. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. It was thick as a grove as I parted it with comb and pin. Now, because of old age, it is thin, very thin. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. Then it goes on. And I'll just read a few of my favorite. It goes on and on and on. Um, my eyebrows were crescents, painted well. Now they droop and are wrinkled as well. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. I had a sweet voice, like a cuckoo moving in a thicket, now cracked and halting. You can hear my age in it. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. My arms were beautiful, twin pillars, they hung free. Now, because of old age, they are weak as a patali tree. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. My feet were beautiful, delicate, as if filled with cotton. Now, because of old age, they are cracked and rotten. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. It actually includes lots of other paragraphs going through all parts of the body. And then it ends, this is how my body was. Now it is dilapidated, the place of pain, an old house with the plaster falling off. 
Beautiful, the line of each one. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. There can be a tremendous amount of pain as um, we age. Um, and there's a lot of vulnerability that comes with, pain, with age. I was speaking this morning with one of my elderly aunts. She's 95 years old. And this has been a rough few months because this is the first year that she's uh, she lives alone and um, this is the first year she had to ask for help with paying bills and taxes and um, it's getting hard for her to drive it's getting hard for her to get around in the winter she's on the east coast and I guess they've had just was cold. She was saying how cold it was and how she feels like a cat who opens the door and sticks her nose out for a few minutes and then comes right back in. <laughs> and I can sense in her voice the sense of kind of really feeling the, the vulnerability of age and the fear of not being able to take care of herself. The, I asked her about her sister, who's about a hundred and... Um, I don't think she's had her 101st birthday. I think it was less than a year ago that we had the, the 100th birthday. Now, it was only um, also the sister lived alone up until I think a year or two ago. It was around the 100th birthday that she permitted somebody to stay with her as a caretaker. But she did stop driving a few years before. <laughs> and somebody would come by to take her shopping and things like that. Um, so this particular side of the family is fortunate to actually experience old age, very old. <laughs> Some of us aren't so fortunate and we experience old age and a younger years. Um, but it is very interesting to see how they've thought of themselves as being so capable, so healthy all their lives, so competent, so independent. And at some point, all of that falls away. And then the question is really, how, are, how okay are they with their vulnerability? And I wonder if aging might be more difficult in some ways for people who haven't really worked with their vulnerability, haven't... Is that mine? I forgot, no. I forgot to turn mine off, so I'm hoping. <laughs> um, so, um, so sometimes that vulnerability uh, is something that we can work with young, and it might allow us to experience the inevitable decay of our bodies, of our hearing, <laughs> and of our senses that occur with age. So what about sickness as the second heavenly messenger? We're very vulnerable when we're sick. We know that, right? You know, even just getting a cold or a flu, there's been those nasty coughs that are going around. And we can feel so literally under the weather <laughs> and just vulnerable, vulnerable. These little viruses and bacteria that we can't even see end up ruining our schedule <laughs> and not permitting us to go to work or do the things that we want to do. When we're sick, sometimes we just feel miserable. Our abilities are compromised. We can't think clearly. We can't work. We can't go to events that we want to do. We basically can't do much. 
And sometimes we're in pain, we can't sleep well, so we're tired and we ache. Sometimes we have fever and we're confused, or we have to take medications that affect our minds in other ways. Every living being is vulnerable to illness. Maureen mentioned her, uh, this cat. Um, you know, cats tend to be fairly healthy, I think. You don't see them sick so often, like with coughs and colds. But um, we took our cats, we were going out of town and took the cats to the cat hotel, you know, the little cat kennel. And the poor thing came home with a cold. And it was so sad to see the little cat sneezing and sleeping. And I cooked up a pot of chicken soup. And I wanted it to have chicken soup. And I felt so bad. This, this, deli- this, just, this little cat was so, the suffering was just so visible. It can be difficult to open to vulnerability, especially our own. And we may even resent illness or feel, this shouldn't happen to me. What did I do to deserve this? And we can try all sorts of things to try to avoid illness. You know, every remedy, you know, all those, all those aisles and aisles of remedies and everybody's got their current, you know, you take this and it'll knock out the cold like that. And you know, one time I was teaching a retreat and um, I started to get a cold in the middle of it. So I tried like six of those things, all at maximum or dosages. And it actually did knock out all the symptoms until the retreat ended and then I was really sick. <laughs> but I have no idea which one worked. Because <laughs> I took, somebody said zinc, somebody said uh, vitamin C, somebody said airborne, somebody said this Tibetan thing, somebody said this Chinese thing, somebody said this homeopathic thing, and I tried every one. <laughs> so I don't necessarily recommend that. It might be worth sometimes just being sick. You know, getting yourself a box of Kleenex and just sit there and be sick mindfully and aware rather than try to, to fix everything. Now, of course, we have to, you know, take care of our health and not let things get out of hand so that one, you know, a common cold gets blown up into some kind of a, a more serious condition. But sometimes when we are sick, and we know that we're going to be sick, I would encourage you to, if you can, be sick mindfully. And see if you can let go of some of that resistance, some of that fear that circles around sickness, where we're rushing for all of the medications to suppress the symptoms. And if you can, just take a couple of days to be sick and feel it. Why not? Why not explore that? Sickness comes with having a body. There's no way to have a body and not be sick. So it's a great time to practice. And one of the things that we contemplate, when one of the things that we practice is this contemplation of the body. When we're sick and we're meditating, those of you that have attended retreats, I, I've, I've had it many times when people come on retreats and they, they get sick before the end of the retreat and they think, oh, now I can't meditate because I'm sick. Well, actually, we can meditate just fine. You know, we're mindful of coughing, we're mindful of sneezing, we're mindful of stuffy, 
We're mindful of instead of being able to breathe through our nose, we have to breathe through our mouths and all those sensations. We're mindful of the whole process. But one of the things that we have to practice when we're sick is we recognize that we simply are not going to get concentration, concentrated the way that we would when we're not sick. It's just the energy isn't there. It doesn't happen. But we can develop equanimity. We can develop peace. We can practice with patience, with acceptance, with tolerance, with wisdom. So it's a wonderful opportunity to realize the first noble truth of dukkha through contemplating the body. I've got news. You're going to die. And we don't know when. We don't know when. Is that a disturbing thought? It's one of the few things that we can be sure of that we're going to die. And it's something that we have very little, no control over, really. Can we accept that? Or are we traumatized and shocked by the inevitability of death? Or can we meet it? Can we see it? Can we recognize the um, intertwining of birth with death? India is a great teacher for um, recognizing the inevitability of death, not removing ourselves from it. I had actually never seen a dead human body until I had been in India. It just simply wasn't, you know, the funerals I had gone to were closed caskets. I just I hadn't bumped into it. And I went to India and I was doing a retreat and I kept seeing these parades going through the street with drums in the back. And I didn't realize at first, until I got close enough to realize that they were, that they were carrying a stretcher with the dead body on it. Because from a distance, I just couldn't see what it was. And then once I recognized the sound of the drumming, and the, they would go with this kind of like a marching band sort of thing and drumming, um, I started to notice each time I heard that, because sometimes you'd hear it from quite far away, and know, oh, that meant that somebody died and they were going to be cremated. It was amazing how frequent that sound was. And I think we miss that unless you read the obituaries. We don't necessarily see it. We don't beat the drum to announce a death in our culture quite the same way. It tends to be something where only people who are invited or small families might meet at a funeral parlor or have a memorial service. I've been very delighted that um, Edie has been helping me to develop a process for memorial services with, for Insight Meditation South Bay because it's going to happen. One of us is going to die. And it may be that we want to have a service and a memorial within this community. And many of you have other spiritual faiths and other traditions where you would have services or your family would. But for some of you, this might be the place that you would choose. So we want to be prepared to offer that. So Edie and I are developing um, a, a uh, kind of outlines of, of processes and resources to um, make that um, easy and um, clear when the time comes so that we're thinking through it and not going to be shocked by it. And I've appreciated the interest of the board and the leadership committee in developing that idea.
there was one time when I um, was in India and I went to, uh, sorry, I was in Thailand and I went to visit Ajahn Damodoro and request permission to stay at his monastery outside of Bangkok. And when I was um, uh, entered the monastery, the custom is is to ask the abbot for permission to stay. So I was uh, guided to the waiting room, the guest room, the waiting room, to wait for for him until he was ready to have uh, an audience and to um, to receive me. And there was this couch and lounge chair kind of thing, and. Um, so I sat down on it, and then I started to look around, and I realized that I was sitting more or less in front of a row of skeletons. And around the skeletons, uh, above the skeletons were pictures, photographs, uh, or clippings from newspapers of corpses and dead bodies that had either been from car accidents or murders. Um, and then around the corner, as I started to look around, I realized there were glass cases. So I walked around the corner, and there were dried human bodies that were displayed in glass cases there with chairs in front of them for people to sit and contemplate the, the, um, the corpse. And then there was a, a, a jar with a, 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 baby, a baby in formaldehyde. And it was quite a powerful thing to realize this is the waiting room. <laughs> Um, but also a, a really amazing experience because we don't often get the chance to really see and the encouragements to contemplate death. In this monastery, they also had a section that was um, devoted to funerals. And they were, they were outside funerals, just like on the banks of the river in India where they would pile up wood and put the body on it, cover it with more wood and basically burn it and people would sit, the family would sit around and watch the process as the monks chanted. And I didn't watch for a long time in this monastery, but I watched a long time on the, on the, um, in the charnel grounds of India, just watching the bodies burn one after another, after another, after another, and all of the different layers and the popping and the this and the that, to really just see what is this process of a corpse. When we look at death, oh, this is a lovely quote I want to share with you. Um, you might not think it's lovely. Um, it's from the Satipatthana Sutta, where there's a section in the, mind, in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, that describe one of the contemplations of the body as being the contemplations of the decomposition of the corpses. Now, when we teach from the Satipatthana Sutta in the West, usually we talk about mindfulness with breathing. And we skip all the rest in the mindfulness with body section and then go to the um, mindfulness with feelings. And then mindfulness. So there's a little bit of kind of sanitized approach to the um, to the Satipatthana Sutta. We might throw one or two other pieces in here or there, but usually you don't quite get this class, this teaching, at least not in your beginning meditation classes. But the Buddha said again, bhikkhus, as though he were to see a corpse thrown aside in a charnel ground, one, two, or three days dead, bloated, livid, and oozing matter. A bhikkhu compares this same body with it thus. This body too is of the same nature. It will be like that. It is not exempt from that fate. So the contemplation is when we see a corpse, 
we think my body too, this body, is going to be like that. And you go through all of the different, the, the, the traditional meditations go through all of the different stages of decomposition. Um, bloated and livid and oozing and, and dismembered. You know, there's like so all the way down to the skeleton. And you do the different contemplations in, reflecting on each one in relationship to our the fate of this body because so often we cherish this body and we think oh that's going to happen out there but not to me many people I, here i know saw the um ex, one the body worlds exhibit in san jose and it's a very interesting experience to contemplate it did you contemplate this is going to happen to me you know this is inside of me I was watching a family go through the exhibit um, around the same time that I was, and very curious kids, and it was quite impressive that they brought their kids, you know, little kids, to the show. But they were, I noticed that, that they tended to speak about the, um, uh, the plastinate um, uh, corpse as being like it, wasn't, like it wasn't us, like it wasn't the same somehow, it was somehow outside. And I think that's a very natural tendency when we haven't recognized our own vulnerability. And what the Buddha's instruction was, was with each contemplation, we really take it on. Just as he saw sick, aging sickness and death and asked the question, is this going to happen to me? And Chana, the charioteer, said yes you too will grow old, get sick, and die. He's asking us to do the same thing. When we see aging, when we see sickness, when we see death, to ask, this, is this going to happen to me? Yes, this is going to happen to this body too. And it, the, this, the discourse for the Satipatthana Sutta goes on to all of the different stages of the skeleton with flesh and blood held together with sinews, the fleshless skeleton smeared with blood held together with sinews, goes on with a hand bone here, a foot bone there, or a rib bone there. It goes through all of these different various combinations. But the gist of it is every aspect that we see externally, to take it on, to contemplate it, to reflect. The reflection on death encourages a sense of urgency in our practice so that our, the, the spiritual life, the um, aim of the spiritual life in the Buddhist tradition leads to the deathless, not immortality in the Buddhist tradition, but the deathless. It inspires us to live fully for every single moment so that we are completely cognizant of each moment and aware in each moment that this could be our last moment. The time for our death is unknown, it's uncertain. So that each moment of life becomes a preparation in a way for the moment of death. But when we are not attached to either this process of life or this process of death, there is the potential to realize something that is not bound by identification with this cycle of birth, aging, sickness, and death. So we look very closely at these processes, birth, aging, and sickness, and death, in order to free the mind from the fear and the attachment and the identification with birth, aging, sickness, and death. The fourth heavenly messenger, which comes up only in some of the discourses where the Buddha talked about the heavenly messengers, is this last 
um, image of the renunciate or the sadhu, the recluse that the Buddha saw or Siddhartha saw. And I want to begin with the, in this section with a, a poem by Ryokan where he said, My life may appear melancholy, but traveling through this world I have entrusted myself to heaven in my sack three quarts of rice, by the hearth a bundle of firewood. If somebody asks what is the mark of enlightenment or illusion, I cannot say wealth and honor are nothing but dust. As the evening rain falls, I sit in my hermitage and stretch out both feet in answer. We live in such an extraordinarily wealthy nation, wealthy country, and wealthy area. We have so many different pleasures. To many people, this is something of a pleasure grove, a deva realm. And yet many times we are not even happy. We're experience chronic anxiety or suffer depression. And it's worth considering how do we relate to the material aspects of our lives because how we, what we have is not going to determine our happiness. The Buddha said, abandon what is not yours. This will lead to your happiness for a long time. It's an important consideration to consider what is it that we think we can actually possess, control, have. How do we create the sense of mine around our experiences? Renunciation, as Christopher Titmitch said, the life of renunciation is to know that one has nothing. This describes a process of wisdom that is not just letting go of extra material things in the world, not just external objects, but a quality of inner renunciation that frees us from the clinging, that allows us to experience the joy that Siddhartha saw on that sadhu's face, a lightness of being, a quality of ease that was not dependent on having and gaining and accumulating things. Too often we forget that suffering comes from clinging, from grasping, from holding on to things. We sometimes forget how happy and joyful any moment of letting go and release actually is. Do you want to experience happiness? The simplest way is to just let go. No matter what you're experiencing, whether you're tied up in emotional knots or you're trying to organize something, any little moment of releasing of attachment brings with it a quality of lightness in the mind, of joy in the mind. So practicing renunciation doesn't necessarily mean some great act of leaving the home life to enter into homelessness. By the way, my spell changed it to hopelessness. <laughs> but rather it describes an ongoing acts, ongoing processes of letting go. Letting go of views, letting go of identities, letting go of concepts, letting go of demands, letting go of ideas of how things should be. So we're literally releasing the grip of clinging. 
can we let go of this movement toward trying to get more of what we want, the movement away of trying to get less of what we don't want? Can we look very honestly at our relationship to things and see what we have taken to be mine and to ask ourselves, is this really mine? I experimented for some time with different kinds of renunciation practices and I think it's well worth exploring even in the busyness of daily life to periodically undertake some practice of letting go. Um, In the monasteries we had lots of practices around clothing. I didn't ordain as a nun but I did make a commitment to just have, I had just a couple of of pantsuits that were dyed the same color brown and that was just what I wore. Um, I made the commitment to eat only one meal a day for a year or so and that was just what I did and experience what the um, what happened in the mind around that. Um, In daily life many people make commitments to let go of certain kinds of food or activities to practice um, celibacy to not watch television to refrain from certain kinds of speech or um, habits that they indulge in. Um, For some years I lived in my van which was a wonderful practice of simplicity. Um, For about a year I made the commitment to not sleep on a mattress but to just live on sleep on on the ground which was also a wonderful experience of renunciation. I'm not necessarily suggest that you do anything in particular but you might consider if there isn't something that you might like to explore renouncing this this month and just see what life is like without it. Perhaps it'll be lighter, perhaps the mind will be a little bit freer. Some of, sometimes this, these lists sound a little bit austere because we're used to such pleasure but even something as simple as one meal a day, you know that's actually more food than what most people on the planet eat and it's quite enough to survive. So you might consider if there isn't something to renounce, to let go of. Maybe something more than just chocolate. That seems to be the one that everybody likes to choose. But it really isn't great suffering, I think, to let go of chocolate. (laughs) And I'm not suggesting that you suffer, but just explore, really, what, what are we so attached to? And can we experience the simplicity of life? We all know that everybody who is born is going to die. We know that beings who are subject to birth are also subject to aging, illness, and death. We know that we wish to be happy and to avoid suffering. Can we see that all beings are our friends who share birth, aging, sickness, and death? That one sentence, all beings are my friends who share birth, aging, sickness, and death, was the contemplation that I chose for a retreat that I did in Thailand. So for some weeks I was spending in this monastery in southern Thailand. Every contact that I had, it might be an ant crawling by, or a little beetle on a leaf, or a novice 
sweeping the floor or a lay person coming to the monastery for, to make offerings or a truck passing on the road outside or the sound of a horn um, of a bus going by. With every contact, bats or snakes, sounds of people near or far, I contemplated, ah, this is a friend who shares birth, aging, sickness, and death. And again and again, with every contact, I just had that thought and that sentence come through the mind, ah, here is a friend who shares birth, aging, sickness, and death. It had an amazing effect on my consciousness that brought with it a sense of profound interconnection, a sense of care, an openness to the vulnerability of life. And it dissolved the sense of separation that we so often have when we hold ourselves apart from those processes of birth, aging, sickness, and death. I want to end with a um, short quote from Pema Chodron, who said, When we look into our own hearts and begin to discover what is confused and what is brilliant, what is bitter and what is sweet, it isn't just ourselves that we're discovering. We're discovering the universe. Let's have just a minute of silence together, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.